Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Jonathan Haidt about his new book that he co-authored with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a very, very interesting book. We got an advanced copy of it and read it. It's excellent. Recommended a great deal. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, most of you have, if you have heard of him, you know him from The Happiness Hypothesis, which was his first book, a fantastic book. I've been assigning it to students for for years and years. Fantastic book. Um, also, after that, he wrote The Righteous Mind, How Good People, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Also a fantastic book. And then he founded um, Heterodox Academy, which is trying to promote free speech and open inquiry within universities and trying to get people to stop you know, deplatforming people and all of that stuff. So it's a very, very interesting interview. I think you'll enjoy it a great deal. But before we get to that, um, we could use your support. There's a number of ways that you can do that. Uh, first, most obvious way is you can become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. If you go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a Patreon supporter, even if you just sign up to uh, pledge, you know, a dollar to a month. That actually helps us a great deal uh, in a number of ways. You can also support us uh, by sharing the podcast, by liking us, leaving reviews on iTunes and other sites. This sort of works the algorithms in our favor and makes it so that the podcast is shown to other people. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Likeville Pod. You can join our Facebook group, which is just Likeville. And that's where we very often will have live events. We will give sort of updates on upcoming guests. You can send questions that you'd like us to ask them. So it's uh, definitely join that. It helps us to communicate with you on a regular basis. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by our sponsors. We have a number of sponsors of this episode. Uh, the first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers private online photography courses for all levels. Uh, he will teach you how to use your camera, how to take fantastic pictures, and then he'll also show you how to edit the pictures afterwards and make them as beautiful as possible. He is one of those rare people that not only is very good at something himself personally, you know, that that horrible expression, those who cannot do teach. I've always hated that expression. But there's definitely some truth some truth to it, more than I'd, I'd like to admit sometimes. But Sebastian is one of those rare people that actually can do uh, photography very, very well, and he can also teach it. And I've seen firsthand people who've taken his courses and their skill level rises dramatically. And I think the reason why he's very good at, at teaching people photography is that he, it's not at all about sort of how do you feel or what is your artistic or what is your vision you're trying to. It's very technical. It's like this is a tool. Here's how to use the tool. Uh, in the most effective way, and then here are the various software programs that can help you to sharpen the, the uh, 
the images that you've created with this tool. It's very, very practical. And it's uh, similar to getting a training in how to become an electrician or a plumber or some sort of artisan. And I think that gives, uh, I suspect that that's a lot of the advantage that, uh, that he has. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, Good Mix is fantastic. I've been eating it for breakfast for, for months now. The wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts and dried fruits. Um, it's very, very, you usually have it. I have it with yogurt. I know there's other ways that you can have it, but that's, that's the way I like to have it. You mix it with some yogurt. I uh, eat it. It is, tastes very, very good. It's, it's interesting. And what I mean by that, it's a very complicated mix of flavors and textures. So it never gets boring. Like I, if I, for a while, I mean, this is a long time ago, but I used to eat oatmeal, <laughs> oatmeal for breakfast every day. And I like oatmeal, but it got really boring after a while because it's just, you know, exactly the same uniform consistency and the same taste all the time. Uh, well, it's not like that with, with Good Mix. It's a very interesting combination of flavors, and it's super, super healthy, super good for you, uh, fantastic for your digestion. And the thing I like the most, because I tend to teach in the morning and early afternoon, and I have a very intense period of about six hours from the time I get up in the morning until I teach my my last class. And so it's fantastic because I can have a bowl of this stuff and I'm completely full all the way until um, after I've I've done all of my classes. It fills me up all the way until kind of mid-afternoon, just one bowl of this stuff, uh, which is fantastic. Right? So uh, this episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Elsa's is a fantastic bar restaurant uh, here in Montreal in the Plateau Montreal neighborhood. It's just got a wonderful environment, very nice kind of ambiance. You can have a conversation with somebody and you don't have to yell. The music is always fantastic, but it's never too loud. It's just the right, right environment. If you go there during the day, uh, the place, I mean, it looks like, like a should be in a movie like a movie set you go in there and it's just it's all writers working on their their novels or their articles there's photographers in there with their their expensive apple computers editing their photographs from a shoot that they took earlier on in the day and there's it's just an amazing people have people having business meetings very creative types it's it's elsa's has uh, a lot of charms, but one of them, for those of you who are visiting Montreal and you want to check it out, Elsa's is one of those place, places that the locals go to. It's not, you don't see the, the drunken teenagers from uh, South Boston going to Elsa's. They they end up at the strip clubs on, you know, whatever, on St. Catherine Street or on the big clubs on saint Anna or something like that. So it's more of, a, although it is very, very centrally located in the, um, the sort of the most happening neighborhood in Montreal, it's just enough off of the beaten track that you don't, uh, you don't have any of those obnoxious people in the place. It's just a wonderful place. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Café Lali and Galerie des Artistes, Galerie d'Art, which is a symbiotic 
relationship. It's two businesses in one. It's a mother and a daughter that have a cafe and an art gallery inside the same space. It's in St. Henry, which many people say in Montreal is the new plateau, uh, the new kind of hipster neighborhood in Montreal. It's a very, very nice place. They have fantastic coffee and great art up on the walls and a very interesting kind of group of people in there. It's a wonderful place. All right. Well, without further ado, I give you Jonathan Haidt. Uh, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we're going to be talking with uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, the co-author of the book that just came out today, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Hey, John. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, John. Yeah, I, This is just a wonderful honor for me to be talking to you. I mean, I've... I've assigned the happiness hypothesis to, no joke, thousands of students over the years. And it's, it's amazing. You know, students come back to me and, you know, at this point, you know, the book's been out for a while now. And, like, I assigned it, like, the first semester after it came out, I assigned it. And I've assigned it again and again and again. And you know how it is. You, you assign certain books and they're good books, but you get sick of them, right? So... You, you basically go on to something else just because you're sick of teaching on that. Happiness Hypothesis and The Righteous Mind are uh, books that I, I never get tired of teaching. <laughs> so, oh. uh, and well, and that, that... students come back to me years later and they say, you know, I don't remember anything I learned in college, but I still go back to The Happiness Hypothesis again and again. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. And it, it certainly helps with my books that the world is getting completely messed up in exactly the ways that, that my books are relevant to, especially The Righteous Mind, and the, the, you know, which I, I wrote that in, the, in around, like I started in 2008 because I thought political polarization is getting out of hand. Oh, my God, things are getting so bad between left and right in you know, 2008, 2009. And oh, to be back in those days. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I go back and I look at The Righteous Mind now and I look at some of the sort of the, the the more stupid reviews of it and like they sort of saw you as like uh, you know you were making a tempest in a teapot that you were like making a big deal out of nothing they're like oh nothing to see move along folks nothing yeah. nothing to see here yeah. and yet everything uh, that you said has gotten so much worse Right? So. Yeah, if only if only I could uh, apply my abilities to the stock market and then I could short <laughs> everything because everything would go down so why did you write this book and why did you write it with Greg rather than just writing it uh, by yourself? What, what did you need from him to, to sort of make this book happen? Well, I mean, Greg and I are, you know, like the uh, you know, two hands clapping here or the upper and lower jaw or whatever. I've been, I, you know, sorry, I do too many metaphors. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> I mean, the, the original insight for the book was entirely Greg's. Greg had this amazing idea, this amazing insight. Um, in 2013 to 2014, in that academic year, uh, we started seeing some new ideas. Some there was a kind of a phase change. It, it wasn't broad, but it was it was in a few places. There was this emerging idea that students are fragile, and we started hearing. You, you can go back and if you Google the terms, you can see that trigger warnings and safe spaces, microaggressions. There was hardly any mention of them before about 2012, 2013. 
but the first articles start coming out in the New Republic and the New York Times about trigger warnings and safe spaces. Um, and Greg came to me in the summer of 2014 <clears throat> and said, John, this weird stuff is happening. And what I see happening on campus, because we should be clear, Greg is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He's been working on college campuses since about 2000, uh, defending students who get in trouble for speaking in their minds, for saying what they believe. Um, campuses are often have often been hostile to, to free speech in certain ways. So Greg's been fighting that battle for a long time, but he started seeing something new around 2013, 2014. And he came to talk to me to tell me that what he was seeing was students making exactly, like they were being taught to make exactly the mistakes that he had learned to stop making in cognitive behavioral therapy because Greg is prone to depression. He's had some terrible, um, almost life-ending depressions and CBT saved his life. And now he saw students learning to catastrophize, to do uh, black and white thinking, to do emotional reason, like all the stuff he learned not to do. So the whole idea for the book was Greg's and he came to talk to me and because it was a very psychological idea and I thought a really good one, I said, uh, hey, you know, this is a great idea. I'd be happy to read drafts for you. And in fact, you know, if you'd like to have me on as a second author, I, you know, I really like this idea. And so he said, yes, he, you know, we, we liked each other and it was clear that we had different skills. So I joined him and we wrote this, <clears throat> we wrote the paper in the Atlantic, came out in August of 2015. And we thought we were done. Like, okay, we said all we had to say. And then all hell broke loose. So, you know, it was in the, it was Halloween of 2015 when, a lot of schools seem to kind of go crazy about about the possibility that somebody would do something bad at Halloween. Um, so anyway, uh, things got worse and worse after our article came out and Greg decided he wanted to turn it into a book. And I was too busy. I have another book to write on capitalism and morality, which I'm supposed to be writing. And I have a contract and it's wow. years overdue now. And and if you know, my answer to everything was, no, I'm too busy. I can't do anything. And that was my first answer to Greg. Like, sorry, I'm too busy. But once I realized, okay, this is really serious. These problems are getting worse. And if Greg's going to write the book, I'd like to like to help him. So I said, all right, sign me up. Um, so anyway, that's the backstory to how we went from a lunch conversation in 2014 to uh, this book coming out, um, you know, this week in uh, uh, in September. Yeah, I mean, you you what was your division of labor? Because I it seemed to me when I was reading the book, you know, because I've had such a, a familiarity with your books for years now and teaching on them again and again uh, that when I was reading the book I was like oh that's John's voice John's voice John's voice oh somebody else's voice somebody else's voice John's voice oh like, okay so did you have like a clear division of labor like a good marriage I mean like well yeah so what we do I mean so in terms of our areas of expertise you know all the all the stuff about law and policy and free speech that's all Greg all the stuff about psychology is you know is me um although we, we also had help from pamela Pereski. Uh, greg hired her as a as a the main researcher for the book and so some of the sections on on clinical psychology and some of the stories were written by pamela Pereski, who, who writes for psychology today um but by and large we divided up the chapters so i took the lead on half the chapters greg took the lead on half the chapters now greg is very very creative um, but he's not well organized. So he'll turn in like reams of, you know, reams and reams of stuff. And there's a lot of good stuff in it. But basically, you know, I would, so I would have to rewrite a lot of his stuff. So, so a lot of he's the He's like ideas, one of your graduate students. You have to like. <laughs> well, no, but you know, look, creativity Your, dis your dissertation is going to be 2,000 pages long if you don't stop. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so, you know, creativity has, there's like the expansive phase. You have to generate ideas. And then there's the selective phase. You have to pick 
what you're going to develop and put it into a sequence. And and I'm better at that than Greg is. Yeah. So so we were a great team. You know, neither one of us. You know, if you gave us ten years, neither one of us could have written the book on our own. Uh, <laughs> but when you put us together, but you know, but it is true that I, you know, if you look at the actual words, like because you know, I think I'm the better editor. Um, and so it, it may sound more like my voice, but a lot of the ideas in there are Greg's and, and also and, and Pamela's and other people at FIRE and all the friends we, you know, Lenore Skenazy. Uh, we had a lot of people um, read chapters and give us ideas because a lot of people are really concerned about what's going on. And so, yeah. you know, whenever we would tell people about it, say, oh, wow, yeah, can I read chapters? Yeah. Well, I have a number of questions from our listeners uh, about about the book. And obviously they haven't had access to the book, but they've sort of just hearing about the book and reading the Atlantic article and things like that. Uh, we've got some questions. So uh, one of Please. the questions that I got again and again from people was, uh, and, and this, I must confess, this is kind of maddening to me because uh, it just, well, anyway, I'll tell you the question. But again and again, I got people saying, this is just a moral panic. There's mm-hmm. no free speech problem on campuses. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's sort of like the uh, move along, folks. Nothing to see here. Yep. I mean, yep. how do you respond to that? I mean, it's just it's, oh, it's it, very easy. Yeah. So the answer is yes. It is a moral panic. There is a moral panic. There is no doubt about that. If you look at the dictionary definition of moral panic, um, you get a bunch of people who are very upset who are motivated to say that things are terrible, 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 who exaggerate, you have back and forth between, you have the the press, you have a, uh, it's always gonna be either a right-wing or left-wing press. So yes, there's definitely a moral panic. Conservatives are freaking out, they're up in arms. That's true. Now, does that mean that there's not also something going on? No, there really is something going on. All you have to do is talk to any university president. The university presidents are freaking out because every day they're afraid they, you know, they open their email and God knows what some student said to somebody else the day before. And now suddenly it's in the newspaper or there's a demand for somebody to be punished or something. So, um, yes, look, and this is straight out of the righteous mind. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a battle between two groups, as we do in this country, between left and right, each side is now deluged, deluged with examples of bad behavior from individuals on the other side. And um, and so people on the right uh, will point to you know stupid, crazy, you know anti-white things. Let's say that people on the left will say, and they really do say those things. And people on the left will point to stupid, crazy, racist, white supremacist stuff that people on the right say. Now, most people on the right don't say that, and most and most people on the right and left are perfectly sane. But there are extremists. There are people who say bad stuff on both sides. And so each side is completely stoked with examples of how evil and terrible the other side is. So yes, the right is in a moral panic, but that does not mean that everything's okay. Everything is not okay. Um, We have a lot of polling data. It's been a wonderful back and forth. That's actually been a really good thing. There's been some good debates especially with uh, Jeff Sachs, who is a political scientist in, in Canada. Um, we've had a wonderful civil productive debate, which has really uh, helped me see that most schools, we don't, but most schools are probably not very effective. That is, there are about 4,500 colleges in the United States. Most of them are two-year or community colleges or the non-selective. Um, any place where students come to campus and they go home and they have a life, you, you can't get these ideas, these very arcane ideas about speeches, violence, and, and safe spaces, and all that stuff. Those ideas can only take hold when there's very little moral diversity, when everybody is on, in this case, on the left. I mean, you could just as well have an, uh, um, uh, an orthodoxy at a school on the right or at a religious school on the right. 
But at, at America's elite schools, especially um, liberal arts colleges in, in the Northeast and the West Coast, um, you get the, this change in dynamic, you get this new attitude uh, in which even though most students are perfectly sane and healthy, there's a small number at each school that will rip your head off if you use a word incorrectly. Uh -huh. And so if there are seven people at your school out of 3,000 who will rip your head off if you step out of line and nobody will stand to defend you because everyone's afraid of these seven students or 20 or whatever the number is, then you can have a really big change in dynamic um, even without a big change in the average. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was in grad school at Hopkins, I remember I took a class, uh, you know, one of the grad seminars I took was all on sort of race in the media. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, I was the only white person in the seminar. I was only, I was the only man in the seminar. And I didn't feel weird ever. Like mm -hmm. we were sitting. What year was, we what were, year was that? This was in... Uh, Oh, wow. I guess I was uh, 1998. And basically, we were talking about really intense stuff. We were talking about racism. We were talking about systematic, all these different things. But th the idea was we're in a university. So, yeah. like, yes, we definitely bring our identities to the table. And that informs what we're saying. And it, it helps us sort of you know, bring some neat things to the table, but ultimately we're intellectuals trying to make sense of the world. So mm -hmm. I never once felt like, you know, what I was saying was being sort of seen th primarily through the lens of the fact that I'm like a straight white male. Never. Mm -hmm. I never felt uncomfortable mm -hmm. even for a second. <clears throat> now, like I talked to my, yeah, my students, today. my students who are in grad school now, my former students, and they say they would never in a million years go into a seminar like that because it would be mm -hmm. just a den of like, vipers. It would be a yep. horrible situation. Yep. That's right. So a couple of things have changed. Um, so when I say that there's this new morality, when Greg and I talk about this new ethos or new morality, we, we call it safetyism, yeah. um, which sounds fine. Like, isn't safety good? But if you think that, that students are vulnerable, fragile, and that they will be damaged by hostile words, by the presence of a speaker who said something about race, or even didn't say, but is rumored to have said, but didn't really say, whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> if you have this idea that students are fragile, that the world's divided into um, a battle between good and evil, that some groups or races are good, some are evil, and you can tell by looking at people what their moral status is. And it's, it, this comes along with a lot of ancillary beliefs and, and some new ideas. One of them, the most pernicious, one of the most pernicious, is the, is the, as they say now, as some of them say, um, it's impact, not intent. Oh. In other words, in other words, okay, you said something, you answered a question, that made someone in the class feel uncomfortable. And so if that made a member of an identity group feel uncomfortable, and you say, oh, but you know, I, I was trying to be helpful, I'm trying to understand, you know, I didn't mean any harm. To anywhere else other than certain departments of university, anywhere else on earth, Intent is what we mostly judge people on. Sure, it's the difference know, someone, between some, murder and manslaughter. That, that's right. Well, it's like if somebody bumps into you uh, on the, you know, you're on, on a on a line in the supermarket, and someone bumps into you, and they apologize, and it's clear that they didn't intend to. You know, everybody understands that's really, really different than if they shove you out of the way to get ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And that distinction um, has been elided or erased deliberately 
uh, again, not by most students by any means, but in certain corners, and especially the identity studies areas would be where it mostly happens. So there are all kinds of interesting strategic reasons why language changes to help one side advance its, its points, its political um, arguments. But they end up making it impossible to have the kind of seminar that you and I remember from grad school. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so things change. Even if most people didn't change, the dynamic changes in certain parts of the university. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of this, you know, I, I, I got to say, you know, I'm, we're going to have a, a guest on in like a week or two who's kind of an expert on intersectionality. She's a prof and she's she's teaching actually a graduate seminar in the fall on intersectionality. And so she sent me all these readings to do on the subject. Mm -hmm. And I, I read up on it just in the last week. And I got to say, your treatment, well, yours and Greg's treatment in this book is by far the most interesting nuanced uh, sort of critique of intersectionality that i've i've seen and so I, there's some things i want to say about that could but maybe you can just tell our listeners what your take on intersectionality mm -hmm. is sure yeah so it's a word that you hear a lot you know there are a lot of words that come out of the humanities um you know postmodernism and deconstructionism and things like that and I, I, critical race theory it's all kinds of things and and I, I used to try to read those in the 90s and 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 i could never understand them and i was expecting intersectionality to be like that but it really isn't it's it's a very simple and kind of obviously true idea that then gets elaborated in ways sometimes that i think are harmful so the, the obviously true idea is that um, is that people have many identities and and they're as they navigate through the world the world treats them sometimes differently and not just as the sum of their identities and so the original case is so interesting the original case that led to this was that there was a case in the 1980s I think it was in which GM was sued um, the plaintiffs charged that they didn't hire any black women uh -huh. or they hired they didn't hire they hired too few they, they were discriminated against black women and GM was able to defend itself by saying, well, no, actually, look, we actually, we've hired lots of black people and we hire lots of women. <laughs> and the court, the courts agree. And that was true. They did. And the courts agreed. But what, uh, I, so Kimberly Crenshaw is the name of the woman. She's a scholar now at, at Columbia. Um, she, I don't know if she was involved in the case or if she just wrote about it afterwards. I don't remember. But she pointed out that, um, sure, if GM hires a lot of black men on the, you know, in the factories, on the assembly line, and they're hiring a lot of white women in clerical jobs, you know, well, it still is the case that black women can't get hired at GM. And, yeah. and the, the law should recognize this. And that is like, once you say it that way, it's like, wow, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. And, you know, as you and I know, as anybody, you know, anybody knows who's in the social sciences, their interaction effects are real. You know, it's not just the sum of the two main effects, they're interaction effects. So that part is good. And if you watch, so Kimberly Crenshaw has a TED Talk, which is really good. And, and so if you just Google TED Talk, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and she points out ways that thinking about intersectionality helps you see things, see kinds of discrimination that you wouldn't if you didn't know, if you didn't have this concept. So we don't bash the concept. We don't say, oh, intersectionality is terrible. It's not, it's obviously true and useful. What we do though, is we say that there are these three terrible ideas, these three really destructive ideas that are circulating through universities in recent years. And one of them, it's an ancient idea, it's as old as, it's old as humanity, um, is the world is divided into a battle between good, good people and evil people. Mm -hmm. And this is like, you know, um, this is exactly what like, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism 
try to dispel. Um, this is what you find in, in you know, in a lot. It's called Manichaeism, mm -hmm. the, the, the view that you know, everybody's on, either on the side of the angels or the devils. So the human mind is very predisposed to this way of thinking, and and that's what that's like the whole you know the last part of the righteous mind is all about that. So if you take so our species is so predisposed to Manichaeism. So if you take a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds and you teach them intersectionality, you could, in theory, do it really well and in a very positive way, in a way that doesn't amplify tribalism and hatred. But in fact, in practice, what often happens, I don't know how often, but what often happens is you combine it with other ideas about white privilege, privilege theory, uh, and nowadays, is since you know, since last year, everything now is, is white supremacy. So you combine it with these other ideas, and what you get is you get these like these diagrams. We show one in the book. You get this way of looking. Um, it's not just it's not just that white people are bad and they oppress black people, or that men are bad and they oppress women, or that straight people are bad and they oppress LGBT. Like I thought that was the big three. But there's like everything else, you know, tall people are bad because they oppress short people. Fertile people are bad because they oppress infertile people. Um, you know, native speakers of English, like it's like it, you teach young people to see anything that's good about a person is bad because someone doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. And this is just craziness. I shouldn't say craziness. This is, let's just say, playing into our worst tendencies. So that's why what we try to do in the book is, you know, we don't, you know, we're not like saying, oh, SJWs are terrible, intersectionality is terrible. You know, we say social justice is necessary, but there's better and worse ways of pursuing it. Intersectionality makes sense, but there's better and worse ways of teaching it. So we're, we're trying to be nuanced here. We're trying to recognize that there's pretty much always some good or true thing about any movement. And then sometimes they they get mixed up in other ideas or they go too far and have some bad effects. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I thought was fantastic in your dealing with intersectionality and all this stuff is you sort of, you splice identity politics in two. And you say there's there's basically two different kinds of identity politics, one of which has been very, which you know, this is one of the many moves in the book, which I think are just so intellectually productive because it, it gets us away from this like identity politics, bad, identity politics, good. Mm -hmm. And so can you just sort of tell our listeners, <clears throat> how, how do you yeah. sort of parse the identity politics into the mm -hmm. two different genres? Yeah, sure. So, um, so when you think about what identity politics means, all it really means, the most basic meaning of it, um, is that politics, which is efforts by groups to attain their ends in, within any sort of a system, when politics is based on on identities like race or gender, um, that's identity politics. Now, politics can be based on interests. Um, you know, so the, you know, the Mustang, Ford Mustang owners can get together and the, you know, the libertarians can get together and the, you know, the, um, the people who care about the environment can get to, I mean, every, there's all kinds of ways to do politics. And so if African-Americans are being denied um, access to, to some resource and they get together, um, that's identity politics and that's perfectly legitimate and good and necessary. So, um, so we make it very clear when, when a group gets together to say, that they are being denied equal access or equal dignity, that's necessary for a diverse democracy, for any democracy, for any good society. But again, you get these subtle shifts. You get a good idea that gets perverted towards ends that, well, how to, how to put it, that lead, lead 
social justice activist down a quest that is impossible to realize and that just makes things miserable for everybody else along the way. And that is when you shift the standard from equal opportunity to equal outcomes. Yeah. And that's what's happened in the last few years. We see more and more. I mean, you look at you know you look at you look at arguments in this area, and over and over again, what you see is the argument that Group X is underrepresented. Therefore, there is structural racism. Yeah. Now there could be structural racism, but you know, universities are about the last place you're going to find it. I mean, we've been trying to root this out for decades and decades. I mean, we all really care about this. Um, so to you know, if you go, if you say. Well, you know, the physics professors are only 10% of them are women. Oh, really? So you think that's because universities are so sexist that they haven't been trying like hell to hire women in the hard sciences for decades? You know, I mean, there may be some that have not, but most of them have. Um, and so, in fact, there's actually evidence of that from uh, Steve Cece and Wendy Williams. They they did a study where they they uh, sent out uh, you know application packages and asked people to review how you know, would you hire this person, and if you make it a woman, boy, they're much more likely to get hired because you know, <laughs> they want women. They're desperate for women. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> so the question is, why are women underrepresented? Um, and um, if you start by saying if they are underrepresented, then it is because of racist sexism. Well, I mean, that's just that's totally illegitimate at a university. That's a political move that does not belong in a university. In university, we should say, OK, let's look at why. Why would it be? Let's find the truth. Um, and, you know, the, the finding over and over again, and this this came up in the wake of the Google memo, the James Damore memo, um, is that the, the fundamental finding on sex differences is that sex differences in ability are very few and far between. And sex differences of interest are gigantic and ubiquitous. And they show up early in children's play and they're found across cultures and sometimes across species. So, um, you know, it, we have a huge disparity um, in the sciences. Some sciences are mostly women, some are mostly men. The sort of the technical, you know, the, the dry technical engineering type, those are overwhelmingly men. And, and the, one, the ones that involve humans or, or life, so biology, are mostly women. Now, is so where's the sexism? Where's the, you know, what's, what's uh, wrong with that? Anyway, so we're just trying to say that you have to be clear about what you mean by justice. And what I've seen over and over again is that those who pursue social justice and insist on equal outcomes are willing to perpetrate a variety of injustices against innocent people along the way. Yeah, well, you know, for, as a Montrealer, and I'm, I'm sure Steve Pinker could tell you this as well, I mean, he's a Montrealer too, but like the for a long time, I mean, we're talking well into the 20th century, the mid-20th century, McGill University had Jewish quotas, <laughs> and they they would limit the amount of Jews that could get into McGill. And the reason they did that is because they thought if we just make it strictly meritocratic, there's going to be too many Jews. They're going to like overwhelm, and so mm -hmm. they basically yeah, they basically they, were right. they basically had affirmative action for white dude, white Protestant dudes like me. Like that that was yeah. like their. And so when I the first, when I first started hearing about these uh, sort of we want to get equality of result, I immediately thought about this horrible part of our sort of our history here in Montreal of the Jewish quotas, and I thought like. This is exactly what they're doing again. And, yeah. and, you know, the crazy thing, Jews were outperforming everybody else in the 20th century here in Montreal, well, in many other places, but they, they were outperforming everybody else. And this is in spite of the fact that here in Quebec, 
They were dealing with very intense sort of Eastern European, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen levels of like, kind of like levels of anti-Semitism and, you know, a, a harsh environment, mm -hmm. like an intensely Catholic society, mm -hmm. a very like, and they were still, despite all these things that are, that are supposed <clears throat> to cripple you and render you totally helpless, were doing really well. So yeah, I mean that. Yeah, well, that's right. Because you know, a little bit of discrimination, a little bit of hardship, can make you stronger. I'm not saying that makes it good. I'm just saying that uh, you know, I'm trying to think of any previous time in history or anywhere else where it, people thought, oh, if the playing field isn't perfectly level, then my group cannot succeed. I mean, you know, immigrant groups are, are, have been successful in America and, and other places, and often they're more successful. Um, so again, it's just part of this new emphasis on finding ever smaller obstacles and demanding that ever smaller obstacles be removed. It's just, it's just not, it's not helpful and it kind of distracts from what really would lead to success for different groups. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about microaggressions and you've got a very interesting take on that. Can you sort of tell our listeners what your, your take on that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as with all these concepts, there's something good and true and right about it. And so, you know, it's kind of the, you know, as we were talking about before, it's what really matters to most people is intent more than impact. And so, you know, if you can imagine, you know, like, so my wife is Korean American and she was one of the only, um, only, you know, Asians in her elementary school when she was growing up in State College, Pennsylvania. Um, and if people, you know, assume she's Chinese and say things to her, uh, now, you know, back then it was often, it was teasing, it was not, you know, it was often a little bit hostile. But let's just imagine you're the, you know, that people are constantly asking you questions and they're not bad intentioned, um, but it's just, it just makes you feel self-conscious. It makes you feel you don't belong. So the idea that we should have a name for this, we should have a name for things that are not, not hostile, but they still end up making people feel marginalized. That, that's a good idea. I, I could really get behind that term. And I would call that term something like a faux pas. Um, or a clumsy statement, or it was something like that. Um, but if you call it aggression, you're flipping a switch and, and changing the social dynamics. So conversely, we could say um, there are certainly acts of aggression. And so actually, you know, a nice little story about this is that when I asked, I was giving a talk on this, on microaggressions at Berkeley, and I asked, my, my wife came out with me and my kids, and I asked my wife, so how many times would you say you're a victim of, of microaggression? And she thought about it and she wasn't and she kind of asked me for clarification and as we we're talking about it, she said oh well if you mean like people really like saying hostile things to me um you know you know because i'm asian that's about maybe like five you know, maybe about five times that she can point to and they, they really made her angry and and you know those were bad things um and and then she said but if you mean like microaggressions like where are you from no where are you really from or like where are you you know where where are your parents from um those are microaggressions she said zero because i don't choose to interpret those as aggressions i mean people are curious and and you know they want to know if i'm korean or chinese or japanese and i, I don't interpret that as an act of aggression so um so we could use a term we could we should socialize and teach incoming students to be sensitive when they ask questions when they interact with people but as soon as we put it on the footing of aggression now it makes sense to report them and so along with microaggressions along with when you teach about microaggressions the next step is you'll have a, a bureaucratic authority that you can report microaggressions to so at nyu and all the bathrooms there are signs telling people 
what number to call, what website to go to to report someone for any act of bias. Uh, now it includes discrimination and harassment, which are crimes and those should be reported. But um, anything that you feel was an act of bias and any of the things reported are statements or jokes or even things overheard while walking across campus. Um, so if you encourage this attitude that any faux pas is actually an act of aggression that requires the intervention of the university, you are bureaucratizing social relationships. You are turning what could have been just a faux pas into uh, an act of aggression between students. You're decimating trust. Um, so all kinds of bad things happen when you redefine normal social interactions as acts of aggression. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it basically what they're doing in a, in a large sense is what you see in a, a relationship that's, you know, on the rocks or, or a, like a, a marriage that's on the rocks or a relationship between like a mother and daughter or something like that, that they're really not getting along. And you, they hang out in every little thing. They're both sort of hypervigilant and everything is interpreted in the worst possible, mm -hmm. you know, it, possible way and so things that were not in any way meant as an offense are taken as this horrible attack right and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it That's creates right. like a toxic you know I, I like that you i like that you compared it to the way that somebody who's depressed or is, is really anxious is seeing the world that, that they're actually encouraging those kinds of uh, toxic ways of of thinking because that's you know i know there's been a couple times i've never had like you know really bad uh, depression, but there's been times in my life where I was in a in a really rough place and I was in a bad place, and you know, I recognized that during those times I would go into social situations and I would interpret so you know at a departmental meeting or you know whatever mm -hmm. I would interpret yeah. all sorts of things in a really kind of hostile like that somebody was insulting me, and then I would yep. think about it later on and I'd be like you know what like that had nothing to do with me that was not an insult at all that was you know like they were asking yeah. me to pass the the fork like you know what i mean like but it, yeah and so they're encouraging yeah. people to to think in these ways it's it's uh it's like child abuse i mean it's like, yeah no well that's right so that was that was greg's initial insight that's exactly the insight that greg had that this kind of thinking was um, you know, was what was being taught on campus. And actually that's just, okay, so since you and I, I guess we're, you know, we were both back in, in grad school in the 90s, so I have to just, anyway, and you're, you're in psychology, what was your field? What was your PhD in? Uh, history and philosophy. Oh, okay, history yeah, and philosophy. All so. Right, so, um, all right, so I'll just share with you an old uh, joke from the 90s that maybe will be, will fit here. So uh, um, a woman is in therapy and and she comes back uh, to, her, to her therapist in January after Christmas break. <clears throat> and she says, um, doctor, I'm, I'm so, it's a psychiatrist, like a Freudian analyst, let's say. Um, doctor, I'm, I'm so glad you told me about Freudian slips. I had an amazing one over, over Christmas. My, my family was all together. And, and I meant to say to my mother, I meant to say, mom, please pass the salt. But instead I said, you bitch, you've ruined my life. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, you know, if you yeah, you don't want to teach people to think that way. No, no, no. it's a, yeah. I mean, you talk about this. I don't know how much detail you can go to in the the interview, but the tribal mode, right? That we have this sort of it's very hardwired that we have this tribe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, sure. Yeah. So I don't like to say that anything is hardwired, and it's for precisely this reason 
that we have all kinds of abilities and, and modules and systems that can get turned on um, that are activated by context. And this is here I'm drawing a lot on on uh, Tubi and Cosmides and the, the evolutionary psychology folks. Um, and so, you know, there's not much doubt that we evolved for tribal warfare, that, that we were shaped by intergroup competition. I, by the way, and, I got I to interject. I love in The Righteous Mind when you say after September 11th, you immediately wanted to like put, yeah. up, put up an American flag. I love that. It was so tribal. Oh, my. Yeah. It was, yeah. No, I it relate was like, to that so much. Yeah. Have you had something like that? Oh, of course. I was I was living in Baltimore on September 11th. And one of one of our good friends was killed. The plane crashed into the Pentagon. Oh my God! He was wow. uh, a naval uh, intelligence oh officer, and the, he was you know mid twenties. I went to his wedding and his funeral six months apart mm. in the same oh in the same synagogue. Wow! It was horrible. Wow. It was absolutely anyway. I I totally related so, to that. You know, yeah. The tribal so, you know, thing so was so turned things, on yeah. for you. Yeah. That's right. So when things like that happen, you know, I one way I like to think about evolutionary psychology is sometimes I, I find like abilities or systems that I never knew I had. And so the first time I played paintball with my buddies, we we were like 30 years old and we were in Charlottesville, Virginia. And, and we were in this like dark, dirty warehouse fighting total strangers with, you know, guns shooting blobs of paint at each other. Um, and it kind of hurts when you get hit. And and afterwards we came out and we were all like speechless. We are, we We all felt, wow that was amazing because we'd never really done war before as play war but it was great fun and so to find that you have this like room in your heart um for war and then you know i also found that i had it for being a father i mean like all these things that happen to you and suddenly you realize i'm not learning this from scratch i actually have been provisioned with all kinds of psychology to handle this so war is one that we're prepared for and it's very, very easy to turn a group, you know, anybody who's involved, been involved in office politics, you can see how quickly a you know, group might start off very friendly, but something happens and you can very quickly be turned into two warring parties. And so <clears throat> if you have this tribal species and you're trying to create um, a university out of them, and not only are you creating a university, you are really, really trying to create diversity. You really, really want racial, gender, sexual orientation. You want all kinds of diversity. Uh, now, it can be done, uh, and it can have many good effects, but a really good way to ensure that it backfires and becomes miserable for everyone and turns people against each other would be to crank up the tribalism, to point out differences, to make people identify with their group, to tell them that some groups are bad, to tell them that if somebody says something that makes them feel uncomfortable, it's an act of aggression. In other words, over and over again, what I think what we see is um, we're trying to do something very, very hard in universities. It kind of, a, it's like a sociological engineering problem that does not have a lot of degrees of freedom. And what we're doing is we're making it impossible for ourselves by committing ourselves, or rather, allowing certain ideas um, and and practices that turn up the tribalism when we should be turning it down. Yeah, there's um, sort of one thing I also. This is another question that I got from a couple of listeners, which I must ask you. you know, as a philosophy prof, you know, one of the things that was immediately apparent to me in reading this book was that it, you're basically making a stoic argument. I mean, it's a, oh my, absolutely, it's a, it's a yep. very very stoic argument. And, and so, Buddhist, stoic, yeah. Buddhist. Um, well, yeah, as Nassim it, Nicholas Taleb says, uh, stoicism is basically 
uh, a Buddhist that says "fuck you" to fate. So, <laughs> like that, okay. it, you know, it's a, they're very they're very well, I think, similar. I think Nasib, Nasib Taleb is is someone who'll say "fuck you" to anyone. So. Well, he was a traitor, so he, you know, he, like they no, they, they can't yeah. say a sentence without swearing. But uh, yeah. but you know, I I thought of this one passage again and again when I was reading your book uh, from Nietzsche's uh, Joyful Wisdom. I just wanted to read it to you and see what your response was to it. Um, it's called. Um, Stoics and Epicureans says the Epicurean seeks out the city and think about, you know, what you say about safe spaces and, and all these things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So Stoics and Epicureans, the Epicurean seeks out the situation, the persons, and even the events that suit his extremely sensitive intellectual constitution. He forgoes the rest, that is, almost everything, because it would be too strong and heavy a diet, right? I think about in the happiness hypothesis, when you talk about how you could never live in a house on a corner with a light mm-hmm. yeah. because you know that, that you would never be able to get used to it. I did that once. I'll never do that you again. You would never be able to get used to it, right? So yeah. I says, uh, because it would be too strong and heavy a diet. The Stoic, by contrast, trains himself to swallow stones and worms, glass shards and scorpions without nausea. He wants his stomach to be ultimately insensible to everything the chance of existence pours into him. He brings to mind the Arabian sect of the Ahwa that one encounters in Algiers. Like these insensitive people, he likes to act out his insensitivity before an invited audience, which is precisely what the Epicurean gladly eschews, for he has his garden. Stoicism may well be advisable for those with whom fate improvises and who live in violent times and depend on impulsive and changeable people, but someone who more or less expects to live a long life Someone who expects fate to allow him to spin a long thread does well to take an Epicurean orientation. People engaged in work of the spirit have always done so, for it would be the loss of all losses for them to forfeit their their subtle sensitivity in exchange for a hard, stoic skin with porcupine spines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aren't you you, you basically saying everybody has to be like a a hard-ass stoic? No, no, no. So when you put it, uh, okay, so that's a great passage. Where, where's that from? Tell me again who wrote it's, that. It's uh, uh, The Joyful Wisdom, or it's, it's translated, it was originally translated in English as The Gay Science. Oh, oh, that's Nietzsche. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, Nietzsche. It's af- excellent, excellent. Af- aphorism, okay. aphorism 306 from The Gay Science or The Joyful Wisdom. Excellent. Okay, great. No, I, I love Nietzsche, and I, and I love that quote. Um, so when you put it in those terms, we've got to swallow worms and scorpions. Um, yeah, you know, life is pretty safe and easy today. We don't need to be that tough. So if that's the two choices, I'll take the Epicurean and I would raise my kids Epicurean. But um, <clears throat> given everything we know about about kids' development and, and about how they need some challenges, some failure, some exclusion, some pain, um, I if, if I have the option of doing the modified Stoic, where I just do 10% Stoic, no actual <laughs> scorpions, but, you know, sometimes they I do actually, you know, they, they might actually get lost outside and get scared. Um, I'll take that. And so, um, so that's a bit of a trick to make the Stoic side seem so extreme. Um, but you're right that what we're doing in the book is taking, uh, is, is basically praising the Stoics, but it's not just the Stoics. This is ancient wisdom. You can find these quotes east and west. And and that that's what I learned from writing the happiness hypothesis. So it's funny you mentioned Marcus Aurelius because um, one thing that I did um, sort of actually after, after we finished the first draft, 
I was actually quite anxious. Actually, this was last last year, last summer. I was quite anxious last summer. Um, you know, there was the risk of nuclear war, and I was very concerned about uh, what was going to happen when Greg and I published our book, and would we be attacked? And, and you are you are going. To, I, I can tell you right now, you're going to be a lot. Yeah, I've read so, but, I've read now, I've read this book very carefully twice now. Mm-hmm. You're going to get attacked a lot. Uh, yeah, no, I I know that, but um, but. First of all, we we smoothed out a few things. I think. Uh, well, no, you, I mean you read the final draft, so you you know it. But yeah. Um, but I started. I was actually getting kind of anxious last summer, and um, and I when I'm anxious, I often read either Buddha or Marcus or, or Stoics. And and when I picked up Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and now that we had these three great untruths in the book, and I was reading them, I said, Oh my God, he got all of them. Oh yeah. So so here, I'll just give you one quote. Uh, one quote for each. I've actually prepared a handout, and uh, actually, it, it's up at if people go to thecoddling.org, um, it'll be it'll be up there. I'll find out what tab it's going to be. It's uh, it's under. <clears throat> but here, I'll just I'll just pick some at random here. Um, all right. So here, so so the book is based around three great untruths. The first is the untruth of fragility, which is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Uh, so I'm glad you just read us the, the Nietzsche quote. Um, and and um, so here's a quote from, from Aurelius. Just as nature takes every obstacle, every impediment, and works around it, turns it to its purposes, incorporates it into itself, so too a rational being can turn each setback into raw material and use it to achieve its goal. So Marcus Aurelius really understands anti-fragility. This is great. You've got Nietzsche and Taleb in, a, in our conversation just yeah. moments ago. Yeah. You've, um, you put them together and you understand why what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so when when uh, students believe that if a particular speaker comes to campus, it will be traumatizing, even if they don't go, um, that's not good psychology. Uh, the second great untruth that our book is about is the untruth of emotional reasoning, which is always trust your feelings. And this flies in the face of of the central, the central idea in every wisdom literature and in all pop psychology, uh, which is there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So here is Aurelius. Choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Yeah. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. <clears throat> and, th- and here's another one equally pithy. And this should be emblazoned over the gates of every university. You don't have to turn this into something. It doesn't have to upset you things can't shape our decisions by themselves mm-hmm. and that's where cognitive therapy comes in something ambiguous happens and depending on how you react to it you can either give them the benefit of the doubt you can look for other interpretations as you know as you did when you described uh, you know you come out of meetings and realize you know, they, they weren't trying to get you mm-hmm. um, and then the third truth the third great untruth in the book is the untruth of us versus them that life is a battle between good people and evil people. Uh, and so here's Aurelius. Um, when people injure you, ask yourself what good or harm they thought would come of it. If you understand that, you'll feel sympathy rather than outrage or anger. So, you know, if you're sending your kid off to college, let's say, what school would you rather send them to? One that trains them to believe that microaggressions will kill them if they add up, one that trains them to go with their initial feelings and not look for other ways to interpret, one that trains them to divide people into good and evil based on appearances of category membership. You want to send your kid to that school? You know, 
what's he or she going to be like when they come out? How how employable are they going to be if they're fragile, <laughs> uh, fragile, over emotional, and Manichaean? Or would you rather yeah. send them to a school that you know that that was more based on stoic wisdom, but that didn't make them eat scorpions? <laughs> Well, it, it's funny that you, you say that because, you know, I actually, I, I had, a, you know, I was reading the beginning of your book, I immediately, I had a big fear of spiders when I was a kid. I was very, very afraid of spiders, like kind of terrified of them. And I realized at a certain point early on that this got in the way of me doing things that I like to do, which was go out in the woods and kind of, you know, look for mm -hmm. snakes and salamanders and get, have all these, you know, adventures. So I basically, at a young age, I sort of went, I think I went to my school library and said, like, how to overcome phobias. Oh, good and for you. So, wow. And so wow. basically, uh, the first, they said, the first thing you should do is you should get a picture book that has pictures of them. So I, I, yep. so I, I, right. I got a Great book. Great exposure therapy. I got a book like that was like, I don't know, like the, the amazing world of spiders or something. Mm -hmm. And so I forced myself every single day to look at all the pictures of the spiders and to get comfortable with that. And then once I got comfortable with that, I started sort of going out uh, in the woods and sort of looking at spiders and looking at them more closely. And I, I just desensitized myself. Yep. And my final Pavlovian conditioning. Yeah. It's and, perfect. and my, yeah. my graduation was at the age of, I don't know, like 13, 14. I bought a tarantula and I had a, wow. I had a pet tarantula, wow. I had a pet tarantula for, for years. Right. And I would let it crawl all over my arms and everything, and I got over it. But it was totally by desensitization. So yeah. when when what you were saying about how you're wonderful, can, can you just tell our listeners your wonderful analogy to peanut allergies? Yeah, it's not even an analogy. It's a it's a homology. Yeah. So, um, so once you understand antifragility, that is that there are certain things that require um, exposure to negative. You know, they require threats and challenges and problems in order to develop their capability. Um, so Taleb called such things anti-fragile. If you protect them, then they don't get to develop. So the immune system is the best known example of it. If you, uh, if you protect your kids from bacteria, you're going to cripple their immune system. They're going to get sick a lot more as adults because the immune system is an open-ended system. It can't know what, what chemicals we're going to encounter, uh, what bacteria and worms we're going to encounter. So it's designed to learn. And so anyway, the finding, the interesting, the, the finding that really nails this, I, I think, in a very powerful way, um, is that peanut allergies are way, way up since the 1990s. When, you know, when I was growing up, very few kids had peanut allergies. We all ate peanuts. We, we you know, ate peanut butter sandwiches. Whereas when, my, when I rolled my son, when my wife and I uh, took him to a preschool in Charlottesville, Virginia, when he was three years old, um, you know, the meeting just went on and on and on about the peanut, don't bring peanut this and don't bring things that, you know, things that ever touched peanuts and don't bring things that look like peanuts and don't bring things that start with the letter P. I mean, they didn't say that, but practically, like they were so paranoid about exposure to any micron of, of peanut. And so um, it turns out that the reason why peanut allergies have gone up so much is because we started protecting kids from peanuts in the 90s. Just in other wild. words, yeah. Yeah, in other words, so the yeah, so you know cuz peanut protein the, the allergy isn't so much to the peanut, it's to the skin, the little, you know, the red stuff around it. Um, and the whatever the chemicals are, they're not harmful to the body. But uh, if the body gets a chance to learn to be exposed to it, then the immune system recognizes it is not harmful, and then it doesn't mount an, an allergic response. And so the amazing study 
that we describe at the opening of chapter one is one in which um, the, the peanut team, the LEAP, learning early about peanut study, they um, divided kids in half. These are kids who are all at high risk of uh, peanut allergy because they had other allergies. And they just divided them in half, random assignment. Half of them were given the normal advice to stay away from peanuts. Um, their parents were given that advice. And then the other half, the parents were given an Israeli snack, which is a puffed corn snack that's dusted with a peanut butter powder. And they were said, here, here, give your kid this. And if you give the kid that from an early age, and then you look at them at age five, and the rate was, I think, five times as high. It was, I think, 17% versus like two or 3%. I should look at the exact numbers. But um, basically, the rate, if you protect your kids from peanuts, there's a good risk that they're going to be allergic to peanuts. And if you don't protect them, then they probably won't be allergic to peanuts. And we're doing the exact same thing on the playground. If you don't let kids be excluded, then they're going to be allergic to exclusion. They're going to find it much more painful. My daughter um, is in third grade, or she was in third grade last year, and, and the teacher at one point learned that the kids were forming clubs on the playground, you know, like the kitty cat club, or, you know, a couple of kids would say, we hang out here. And, and the teacher didn't like this. She thought it's wrong to exclude kids. Um, but, you know, my attitude is, if kids grow up thinking you can never exclude anyone, and then they get to college, they're going to find exclusion everywhere. They're going to find it so painful. But if you let kids have the normal experiences of childhood, they're going to be a lot tougher. They're going to be able to weather being, you know. So just think what happens when we deprive kids of experiences and then they go on social media and every day they are seeing 10 things that they didn't join in. They're feeling so excluded. Yeah. So we're basically making our kids, you know, peanut allergic in the social realm. Yeah. And there's also a kind of a real authoritarian streak to it because, you know, I, I have two boys, they're 15 and 16. And. I remember my, my older son, Tristan, one time, he got in a lot of trouble for, like, punching this kid in the face, and he was, you know, got, we went down to the, to the vice principal's office and things like that, and it turns out that these older boys were circling around some girls in his class and were basically, mm -hmm. like, touching them and, like, being, like, oh, you wow. know, being really mm -hmm. gross, you know, like, and so he stepped in because that's what he's been taught from you know, his, mm -hmm. my wife and I, like, they, if you see evil, you step up and you do some shit, right? So, like, he Great. stepped up and told them to stop, and when they didn't, he shoved through and, like, hit the, and this was a kid who was two grades older than him. Wow. And he got hit and stuff like that, and he hit, and do you know why he got in trouble? Because they said you should Zero go. Zero tolerance. No, 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 even worse. And they said that, but even <sighs> worse, you they said. You should go get an adult. Exactly. You should oh, my always, God. You should always oh, my go. God. You should always go to an authority figure to oh. solve all of your problems. And uh, we had, yep. you know, we had taught our kids, you, as much as possible, solve your problems by yourself. You don't always, like, run to... Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if they yep. were fighting, I mean, they're 13 months apart. And like, if they were fighting and they came to us, we would always, you would get in a lot of trouble if you came to us. You know, it was like, you need to work this out. You're going to be the most important people to each other long after mommy and I are dead. You need to love each other and be loyal to each other. And you need to work your shit out. I mean, we didn't say shit, but like, like we have to like, and uh, so, and this came into conflict with this very authoritarian model that it's always like a, an authority figure that's supposed yeah. to solve everything. That's right. That's right. So the, the name for that is called moral dependency. There's a wonderful book that I recommend to your listeners called the rise of victimhood culture by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. 
and they are um, they are sociologists who wrote these amazing articles in 2014 and 2015 about microaggressions, which were pretty new at the time. And they analyzed them from a sociological oh, yeah, yeah. perspective. Claire, Claire Neiman, uh, the start of Quillette, she recommended that yeah. the other day. Yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. a very good book. Yeah. And um, and it's describing exactly what you're talking about, that, that when, you know, when, so there are always conflicts in social life. And there can be a culture of honor in which, you know, a man solves his problems and would not go to an authority for help because that would be unmanly. And then there's a dignity culture in which, you know, if someone insults you, you can just walk away. You don't care. You, you don't you don't have to fight them because, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but you're not worth my time. Yeah. Like Marcus um, Aurelius. And, I mean, people would mess with him all yeah. the time and he would be like, yeah, whatever. That's <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, well, I don't know how often people mess with the emperor, but uh, oh, people uh, in his he... people in his entourage, they loved to test his stoic resolve. They would, oh, oh, they oh, would, oh, they would yeah. totally, they would try and get his goat, and they would fail. But if there's all if you read like there's a lot of stories about people trying to like get a get a rise out of him, and oh, that's fascinating. you just could huh. not, you could not mess with that guy's cool. I mean, like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I knew I liked that guy. I thought I didn't like him. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a really really yeah. good guy. He could help you through many departmental meetings. But uh... yeah, no, but that's why that yeah that's why I was yeah that's why why I made this little handy uh, sheet of Aurelius quotes for me. Uh, but just to finish up the victimhood. So what they observe is that in certain environments that are characterized by a high degree of equality and egalitarianism, when there is also uh, an authority very nearby who can be persuaded to side with you if you make your appeal correctly. That's where you get moral dependency, where people, they, they, they say the ability to handle your own problems atrophies, and the point of social interaction is to get the authority to come in on your side, not on the other side. And that's what is happening in some universities. The more we create bureaucratic authorities to settle things, like you know at NYU, we have a biased response team, and there's students who are supposed to um, report uh, you know, report any, you know, if there's somebody says something they think is bad, they're supposed to report them. Um, you know, if I say something that offends a student, I would love it if the student would come to me privately and tell me about it. But that is not likely to happen. In fact, that has not happened in my time at NYU. Um, and I hear this from people all over. It's not, there's nothing special at NYU. I'm just saying that in the new call-out culture, um, you get points for either exposing someone publicly, or if you actually you know, want to get them punished, you do it through a bureaucratic authority. You don't go to the person and say, you know, look, I, I know you didn't mean any harm by it, but you know, when you said that, some people in the class might have might have been offended. And I just thought you should know. Like that would be great if people would do that. You know, diversity is a challenge. Diversity is difficult, and if we all work together and, and give each other the benefit of the doubt, we can make it work. Yeah, I mean, but, I, I you know, when I was in France, I mean, this is years ago. I was in my my mid twenties, but I was in France, and I remember like I, I said something. I, I can't remember exactly what the context was, but I said like, oh yeah, I got totally gypped on that. You know. <laughs> and like okay. and it was in a it was in a cafe with a bunch of people and like one of the guys like later on just one on one he said to me like uh, uh how do you say it in english it's like uh, he basically said like hey john like you know just to tell you um i'm i'm part gypsy and the mm -hmm. the word to say like you were gypped is a, a racial slur and he goes mm -hmm. i can tell by the way you said it that you don't know that. <laughs> yeah, right. and I, I didn't know that until I this said, moment. Until you I just said, me. I said, I have no idea 
that it meant that. And he said, no, I know, you know, and, but he didn't embarrass yeah. me in front of everybody. He didn't mm-hmm. like he humiliate me. And I've never, ever said that word again, ever. That's right. You know, yep. but that's, that's a, like a sort of a, a very gentle, intelligent way of saying like, you know, uh, you shouldn't say he Jewed me down. <laughs> like, yeah, you, like, that's right. But it's, it's recognizing this person clearly has no malice in their hearts. And mm-hmm. it's just an expression. They don't know what it means, right? That's right. Because I, for, I, I love... everywhere, yeah, yeah. Because outside of a college campus, what people care about is intent. Not intent matters more than impact. Yeah. So, and yeah, I love, like I, you know, I love what I love what you say, and well, you and Greg say, and well, this sounds very much like your voice. I gotta say, but uh, in the book where you say, you know, the one of the ironies of all of this stuff is that on the most diverse campuses where you have lots of people who are speaking English as a second or a third or even a fourth language, where you have people who are coming from very diverse backgrounds, different class backgrounds and things like that, these are precisely the kinds of people who are going to make faux pas, who are going mm-hmm. to yep. say day. expressions wrong. And if you're going to make a student body like that cohere and, and get along with each other, you have to encourage them to have the most charitable possible interpretations of people's act you know actions and to teach them that they should be constantly on the lookout for microaggressions and for it's it's just it's a recipe for disaster exactly that's right and so that's why the subtitle of the book is how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure yeah because these you know people are well-intentioned but we're often pursuing policies that end up making things worse especially for students from historically marginalized groups yeah well i i have to ask you this you know because it okay you you started heterodox academy with a number of other people and i was the first people one of the first people to sign up for that i think it's a beautiful thing uh but one criticism i think it's an unfair criticism but i would really like you to respond to it Mm -hmm. is that uh, you don't spend nearly enough time talking about the attacks to free speech coming from the right I mean, now in this book, anybody who actually reads yeah. this book rather than reading a angry review of it, and some people will, um, mm-hmm. anybody who actually reads this book will see that again and again and again, you mention the challenges to this stuff coming from the right. But mm-hmm. what do you yeah. say to people who say that you're just, yeah. you're, it's a lopsided <clears throat> critique? Yeah. So, so first of all, Greg and I set out to figure out a mystery. Why did things change on campus in 2014, 2015? And back then that had nothing to do with the alt-right. Nobody knew the name alt-right. That was not, had nothing to do with the right wing. Um, Greg's research or, or FIRE has all kinds of databases. Challenges to free speech used to come equally from the left and the right. And FIRE has been, has been representing people from left and right throughout its history. But the problem on campus came originally from the left, and that's what we focused on. Um, I've never voted for a Republican. I'm not a conservative in any way. Um, But the problem on campus was from certain portions of the left, especially within the humanities and social sciences. So that's what we began writing about. Um, Now, over time, and especially in 2016, the far right started ginning up and started, you know, they've always loved to hate universities because universities have leaned left for a very long time. But after all the protests and those amazing videos of, you know, of conservatives being shouted down and, and the Christakis is being surrounded, Nick Christakis being surrounded, and you, you, we got a lot more right wing 
um, and many more right-wing news outlets and video places and, and um, podcasters whose sole job is to blast the left and blast universities. So now we are getting some more symmetry. Now that is, we are part of the problem on campus is from provocation from the right. And we are seeing cases, you know, especially if a professor says something that's provocative, they might get death threats and, and harassment from the right. And so we talk about that in the book. Now, did we talk about that in our first year Heterodox Academy? No, because it wasn't really happening. That only really started in late 2016. And then it was really a thing in 2017. And under Trump, it's gotten a lot worse. And his, you know, his troll armies or rather troll armies dedicated to him or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, those and so those are part of the story, and those really, as you say, those feature prominently in the book. But that's a relatively new thing. What tends to happen is each side will point to the excesses of the other side to justify their own excesses, uh, and so that's that's part of what we get. People on the right will say whatever we're doing is warranted because just look at these videos that my friend sent me, and exactly the same thing is said by people on the left. Yeah. Well, this is you know one year and what a day after that horrible. Things happen in Charlottesville, and you know you have a connection to that place. I, to some extent, have a connection to that place as well. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on sort of a year later? What do you feel about that? I mean, you talk about it in the book, but obviously, I, I could feel a little bit of pain when you talked about that, and oh, you, yeah. you passed over it pretty quickly. Yeah, well, so first of all, so um, uh, your listeners will probably now realize that we're recording this uh, in advance. This is, we're recording <laughs> yeah, this in August, yeah. and it's going to be released in, exactly, in, in September. Yeah, um, yeah I used to live um, three blocks east of what was then called Lee Park, where the statue of Robert E. Lee uh, was displayed in the center of the town. Um, and so, and, you know, it just seemed like, well, okay, you know, it's just history. It's a little odd to have a Confederate general and you know, in a town, but all right, it's history. And I think we all learned a lot about these monuments and how, when they were put up in the 1920s, um, not, you know, not back at the time of the Civil War. Um, so I certainly agree that these monuments, uh, when, when, when they are put in a place of honor, I don't think they're, I don't think it's right to have a Confederate leader put in any place of honor. I think it's wrong to destroy statues and art but uh, I, you know, I, I fully agree with getting rid of the, the statues. Um, the march was uh, tragic. I, I think that, um, you know, I know that area very well, and to have allowed, to have allowed the marchers to go right into that little, little downtown square was a terrible mistake. I think the, um, the, uh, you know, wherever the authorities were, they should have kept it out in Lee Park. I'm uh, not in Lee Park. I'm sorry, in, a, uh, in, a, in a much larger park about a half mile away. Um, so it was just horrible seeing seeing the scenes from from afar of the town that I used to live in for, for 17 years, a town that I love. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know my friends there are still you know, still scarred by it. It's uh, and to have your beloved town, it's such a great town, and to have that town now be a synonym. You know, wherever they go in the world, they say they're from Charlottesville. People say, oh yeah, Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it was bad luck. Uh, it was bad management by you know by various authorities. Of course, who knew you know who could have really known exactly what was going to happen. So I don't know. I'm not blaming people. I'm just saying things went awry. They were not well handled. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know that was one of the the absolute low points in Trump's uh, Trump's presidency. I try not to chime in very much. Um, I, I am a centrist. I am not indifferent between the two parties, but I try not to comment on on most uh, most partisan matters but that is one where I, I could not restrain myself and i did write a piece in the atlantic about how trump had 
um, basically um, had um, committed, had violated some of the deepest taboos uh, and had fail, utterly failed in the job of president who was supposed to be the high priest of the American civic religion and at times of national trauma, um, you know, should play a role in making sense of it for us. And he did exactly the opposite. So that was, you know, obviously one of the lowest of many low points of the Trump presidency. Um, I predicted at the time that it would be a real turning point and many more people would shun him and it, it could be the beginning of the end. And I get, you know, that was wrong, unfortunately, that, the, uh, you know, it's the, the, I don't know what to say about it. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, I mean, I have a lot of family members in the States who voted for Trump and I, I can tell you they're just, especially in Ohio, they're just, they're just desperate. They're just so pissed off and angry and they just want something mm -hmm. and they're willing to, you know, sort of throw a stick of dynamite into the building just to try and shake things up. I mean, that's it. Yeah, it's, that's uh, right. So yeah, yeah. this may, it's maybe a good, a good place for us to, to end that the problems we're talking about on campus um, are very much tied to the larger decline of of trust and the larger rise of polarization and the transformative effects of social media. And what you just said is a, almost a, a restatement of the of the of the finding from political scientists that American politics is now run on what's called negative partisanship. That is um, beginning sometime, uh, possibly in the two thousand and four election, but beginning sometime. In the last 10 or 15 years, Americans stopped voting primarily for who they like and started voting more uh, against the person they most hate. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what gets Americans to the polls is hatred of the other guy. And that explains why Trump can do terrible things. He can do all sorts of things that are beyond a faux pas. Um, and he doesn't lose his base of support because it's not I mean, people were voting for him in a sense, but what they're mostly voting for was against Clinton and the Democrats and the status quo and the elites and all of that. Yeah. So because our dem democratic politics is such a mess in the United States, um, you know, boy, it sure looks like you guys are doing doing many things a lot better than. than oh, we, we are. Yeah. You, well, I'm I'm uh, I'm assigning the coddling of the American mind to two of my classes uh, this semester. And I recommend every all of our listeners buy this book forthwith. Uh, but I would I would actually like to close, if it's okay with you, if you could just say a couple of words about your upcoming project, which I, I got to tell you, you know, from a purely intellectual standpoint, I find much more exciting in some ways. Uh, it, your book on capitalism and morality. Yeah. So I, I um, after I wrote The Righteous Mind, um, I happened to move to a business school almost by accident. It was just a, a place to be in New York City when that book came out. Um, and I got there just as Occupy Wall Street was breaking out. And so suddenly everybody was talking about politics, morality, business, and capitalism. And and I knew nothing about capitalism. And I started reading about it. It was absolutely fascinating. It was like reading about evolution for the first time. Like, wow, this explains how everything got here. You know, how all these things got built and why we have this kind of society we do. And it was really thrilling, um, you know, at the age of 46 or so to have new vistas uh, uh, open up. And I thought, there's so much written on capitalism from economists and historians, but nothing from psychologists. And to understand capitalism and why we fight so much over economic matters, you, we can use the framework of the righteous mind, we can use moral psychology. So, you know, if you raise the minimum wage, is that going to help or hurt the working class? Well, if you're on the left, it'll help them. If you're on the right, it'll hurt them. 
because uh, there'll be less employment. And both sides have their statistics. Um, and you know, if there's a giant uh, recession, do you do stimulus or austerity? And you know, these are still things we haven't fully worked out. Um, and even if I mean, maybe economists are, you know, maybe the majority of them do think one thing or the other. But the point is that a lot of what people think about economic matters is basically a reflection of their politics. And so I thought it'd be great to really try to understand capitalism and the economic order from the point of view of moral psychology and use that to explain why left and right can't agree on basic economic facts. So I started, um, I got a contract for that book. I traveled around the world with my family looking at how various countries in Asia and Latin America are developing. Uh, and then um, that was while Greg and I were working on the Atlantic article. And then I came back from Asia and we released our article in August and then all hell broke loose on the universities in October, November. And so that kind of got me sidetracked and I haven't really, um, um, I haven't made much progress on the capitalism book because of all the stuff happening at universities. And I also co-founded Heterodox Academy also in 2015. So I've been kind of busy with all that stuff. Um, fortunately, my editor at, at Random House at Pantheon is, is very, very understanding. I just had lunch with him the other day and he said, you go do what you need to do. Um, and just, you know, the, let's just keep thinking about, about uh, capitalism. And when you get to write the book, um, you know, it'll, be, it'll benefit from all the experiences that you're having doing other things. So I'm still working on that. Um, if people go to stories about capitalism, I have a website that describes that project. Um, but people can also go to thecoddling.com and learn more about the current book. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, John. This was a fantastic conversation. I'm really, I, I loved the book. I'm really looking forward to the book on capitalism. I think Adam Smith is somewhere in heaven smiling at you. Because, I mean, he, he understood perfectly that capitalism is yeah. a deeply moral system. That's right. Right, and, That's right. And it only works when the immoral emotions are attuned in a certain way, right? I mean, that's why, that's right. that's why it works great in some countries and not in others, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, right. I'm very excited about this book. I think it's going to do, it's going to bring the whole conversation about capitalism back to its sort of Adam Smith roots. Uh, okay, good. Well, let's, I, yeah. you know, my, I'm so glad you joined Heterox Academy. Let's let's try to get the universities working a little better in the meantime, and then we'll be able to have some great discussions about capitalism uh, uh, and economic progress. Yeah. All right. Have a wonderful night, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, John. A pleasure right. talking with Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.